my name is Taylor Griffin, and you're listening to the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast. I have therefore considered it essential to relieve General MacArthur so that there would be no doubt or confusion as to the real purpose and aim of our policy. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence by the military-industrial complex. U.S. warships and planes launched the opening salvo of Operation Iraqi Freedom. After years of devastating cuts, we're now rebuilding our military like we never have before. Hello and welcome to a special live episode of Thank You for Your Service, a hard look at American civil military affairs from the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts. I'm Thomas Krasnation. And I'm Nick Pareso. There are few people in America who understand politics the way our guest today does. David Axelrod began his career as a reporter and columnist for the Chicago Tribune, and then reinvented himself in the 1980s as a communications strategist for political candidates in the Midwest. After two decades consulting for congressional and gubernatorial races around the country, Mr. Axelrod joined the 2004 U.S. Senate campaign of a young Illinois state legislator named Barack Obama. Just four years later, David Axelrod and his team of strategists were credited with orchestrating Mr. Obama's successful campaign for the presidency of the United States. After President Obama's election, Mr. Axrod was appointed senior advisor to the president, where he coordinated policy and communications during the first two years of the administration. President Obama's re-election in 2012 was Mr. Axrod's final political campaign. He now runs the nonpartisan Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, works as a senior political commentator at CNN, and hosts the Axe Files podcast. After retiring from politics, Mr. Axelrod published a memoir entitled Believer. In it, he describes some of the difficulties President Obama faced upon ascending to the presidency in the midst of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the unanticipated challenges of the relationship between the White House and the Department of Defense. For today's live interview, we're sitting down with Mr. Axelrod and a few dozen of our classmates, professors, and friends at the Harris School of Public Policy to discuss his career in politics and his thoughts on the highest levels of civil military relations in the United States. David Axelrod, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Thank you for your service. So before we dive in uh, into your political career, we would be remiss as a podcast on civil military affairs and covering military politicization to not talk about the reports that came out over Memorial Day weekend regarding the USS John McCain. For those who aren't aware, uh, there were reports saying that the White House had requested the US Navy to hide or cover up the destroyer, the USS John McCain, in preparation of the president's visit to uh, Japan. Yeah. Our question for you is, at the time that you worked at a as a senior advisor in the Obama administration, your boss was actually a political opponent of John McCain. During your time at the White House, could you imagine you and your staff taking these kinds of steps to, for example, on a visit to a naval base, prevent him from seeing the USS John McCain? No, and, and we should point out, these. Uh, there are other examples of the White House leaning on the military uh, for optics. We, we all remember the mission accomplished banner uh, during the Iraq war when President Bush uh, was president. I'm sure they would love to have that back. But this one was different because it had to do with a figure who, whether you agreed with him or not on specific issues, was indisputably an American hero. That Carrier uh, honors not just uh, John McCain, the senator, but his father and grandfather, who were both distinguished members of the military. And so it was deeply offensive, and it does raise questions about uh, the politicization of the military. So, I, you know, I was upset. And I, let me point out I believe that one, you can have deep disagreements over politics and public policy and still respect each other. John McCain uh, was one of the first guests we had when I started the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. He was my first guest on uh, my Axe Files TV show on CNN. And I just spoke uh, at the Sedona Forum that's sponsored by the McCain Institute uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, I had deep, deep respect for John McCain. Differences over issues, yes. But uh, respect for him as a person, as a public figure, I think his voice is missed. And he is a man of such great stature. And that's one of the things you had to include in your 
political calculations for President Obama's 2008 campaign. Can you talk a little bit about how you drove the narrative of contrasting President Obama from the rest of his political opponents, Hillary Clinton, and then John McCain in the general election? Yeah, you know, it was interesting. Uh, let me say uh, as a preface that when we sat down to talk to Senator Obama about the possibility of a campaign, his concern was less about the primary than about John McCain, who was at that point the front runner. He, this is, this is instructive for everyone who's watching this race now. In the spring of 2007, everybody was writing him off and said he had missed his chance, and then he ended up being the nominee uh, of the party. But when we were talking, he was clearly the front runner, and, and Senator Obama said, you know, uh, I think John McCain would be a tough opponent because he is an iconoclast. He challenged a convention, uh, orthodox thinking when he ran for president in 2000. He's, you know, been there on climate change and immigration and some other issues. Uh, he had real concerns about him as an opponent. As it turned out, I think Senator McCain was, uh, he was, the, the tide was too strong. Uh, you know, the, the, the uh, President Bush ultimately had a 28% approval rating by the time the election rolled around. McCain had to make peace with elements of the Republican Party with whom he really didn't have a close relationship in order to be the nominee. He had to embrace some of the Bush policies with which he had previously disagreed. And, and he just was too encumbered by all of this to be the candidate who he might have been and the candidate he was in 2000. And uh, Barack Obama was the candidate of change in 2008 in a country that was hungry for it. And uh, McCain couldn't overcome that. More specifically, though, what was your strategy for convincing American voters that Barack Obama would be the commander in chief that the country needed here in the midst of two wars? No, it's an obvious. Uh, it was an obvious question. He was four years out of the Illinois State Senate. I think that if you think back to that time, and it's painful for me to say that you guys were probably in, in junior high school at the time, but. Um, but if you think back to those times, um, the war defined everything, the war in Iraq. And there was a general consensus among the public. The majority of Americans had come to believe the war was a mistake. And one of the things that differentiated Barack Obama from the field was that uh, even as a state senator from this, from this district, by the way, a state senator running for the U.S. Senate in, uh, in 2002 and three and four. Uh, he was uh, he took a position against going to Iraq before the war, and his critique, if you look at Google today and look up his speech made at a in the Federal Plaza here in the fall of 2002, was really prescient. And he talked about that he feared a war of undetermined cost, undetermined length, and undetermined consequences that would unleash sectarian uh, sectarian war within Iraq and would make America a greater target for terrorism. All of those things turned out to be true. And uh, while you know he may not have had long credentials, he, had, he was on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in the national security realm, his analysis going into Iraq was a real certification of the fact that he had, he had thought hard and long mm -hmm. about these issues. So he was anti-war on Iraq, but in regards to Afghanistan, he had called it a quote necessary war yes and a war we could win yes. why did he say that well we went to Afghanistan because we were attacked from Afghanistan and and there was uh, there was a linear logic uh, to that and we knew that al-qaeda was basing uh, there and ultimately across the border and uh, that uh, in order to secure our country that we needed to deal with that with that issue his concern during that campaign and he spoke to it was that we were so focused on Iraq, and you remember at that time we were trying to write the strategy in Iraq, the surge was going on and so on, that um, very little thought or strategy was being applied to Afghanistan. And that was another issue that he raised in the campaign. Look, one of the best speeches that he ever gave was his Nobel Prize speech, and that's a whole other story about the Nobel Prize, uh, something that we didn't expect and candidly didn't particularly want it was a kind of a, a lightning bolt. Mm -hmm. um, just as an aside, Robert Gibbs, his press secretary, called him the morning he got the Nobel Prize, and 
president said, it's six in the morning, the president says, Gibbs, are you kidding? Is this some kind of joke? And Gibbs said, sir, I assure you, I wouldn't be waking you up to play a joke on you. You won the Nobel Prize, and Obama kind of sighed and said, all I want to do is pass health care. But um, uh, in his Nobel speech, he talked about the uh, paradox of receiving this award even as he was a wartime president. Mm -hmm and talked about the fact that there are wars of necessity and Afghanistan when we went there uh, was a war of necessity. So you mentioned healthcare already. We know that after being elected, even as a wartime president, uh, commander in chief doesn't get to spend 100% of their effort on war policy or national security policy. So talk a little bit about how the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan fit into the administration's overall uh, portfolio the first two years. You know, you're quite right, Thomas. One of the things about the presidency is that you don't get to choose. You, you have, you know, there's incoming all the time, and you have to deal with all of them, not just one thing. He came to office at a time of great economic crisis, the worst since the Great Depression, and two wars. I don't think any president... Uh, you know, in, in, in our lifetime faced that combination of challenges. And so um, one of the reasons that he asked Bob Gates to stay on as defense secretary is because he thought there was, uh, there was a need for continuity and because he understood that he would be, he had to deal with a, a series of things at once and he didn't want to have a new defense secretary having to learn the ropes and mm -hmm. um, at, at, at a time when he was going to be relying on the defense secretary to help work through where we should go in both Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. Um, so it, it, was, it was challenging. I remember a day in March of 2009 when uh, he started the day with, the, uh, with a briefing on North Korea some things never changed. There was, there were some rumblings about movements in North Korea that were concerning. So the, the his intelligence briefing went long. Then we went into a meeting about whether he whether he was going to intervene to save the American auto industry, and that meeting lasted for 45 minutes. And he said, "Not we need more time on this. We'll reconvene tonight." He went off to do a town hall meeting on the economy had meetings in the afternoon on Iraq and Afghanistan. Then we reconvened and had a two-hour meeting on the auto industry. And when I got back to my office, I slumped in my chair, and Rahm Emanuel, the chief of staff, called and said, get in here right away, Fargo's underwater. There was there were flooding. And uh, I just thought, this, this has to be an episode of the West Wing. This can't be real. <laughs> this can't be real life. So. Um, one of the great challenges of the presidency is you don't get to choose and you have to deal with all of it and you have to be relying on, on people around you, uh, synthesize information and, and issues and you have to have, you know, a broad team both in the cabinet and the White House to, uh, to work these issues through. Mm -hmm. And you said that was in March of 2009. In the latter half of that year, uh, a Gallup poll showed that public support for the president and the war in Afghanistan had been declining um, down to 35% approval for the one Afghanistan. Was there ever a sense that kind of that public support was declining and that the public was getting tired of the war in Afghanistan? Well, I don't think there's any question. Look, we're still there today. I mean, there was weariness then mm -hmm. uh, with, uh, with the war and both wars. I mean, we had 180,000 troops in Afghanistan and Iraq uh, when we arrived. So. You know, we, we were well aware of that, but we also knew that if we were going to stabilize uh, Afghanistan, to the, Afghanistan to the point w where we felt we could uh, responsibly remove a, a lot of our troops, then we were going to have to um, we were going to have to do more there, and we were going to have to have a strategy, and that strategy was going to have to involve not just Afghanistan, but what we what we uh, did about cross-border incursions from Pakistan and. Um, you know, as you know, and I'm sure um, that you're going to want to talk about it, there was a very lengthy process of review. But I just, you know, one of the reasons I was proud to work for the president, I know the impression, we, we all write from different perspectives. And, I, you know, Secretary Gates, who I, for whom I have enormous respect, just did a TV show with him 
uh, wrote his perspective and Bob Woodward has had his perspective that was informed by his sources. And um, my perspective was of a president who was earnestly trying to work through these issues in a responsible way. And, um, you know, the notion that we were sitting there with a political a barometer and making decisions on that basis was just wrong. You know, he took his responsibilities as commander in chief very seriously. Yeah, just for some context on that, um, in Obama's wars by Bob Woodward, um, Jim Jones, who was the former national security advisor, prior to that he was the commandant of the Marine Corps, he uh, privately called you and Emmanuel and Robert Gibbs the, quote, water bugs, the politburo, the mafia, who did not understand war or foreign relations and were too interested in measuring the domestic and electoral impact of the president's decisions in these areas. Yeah. I didn't get to work with Jim that long because he didn't last as national security advisor that long. But um, I'm sure he meant that in the nicest way. <laughs> um, I uh, Look, the reality is that presidents, everybody has their responsibilities. I never doubted for one second that the people who, uh, that, that, the, that our military leadership, our civilian leadership of the Pentagon, uh, that everyone we, everyone we dealt with was earnestly trying to fulfill their obligations, and they all had roles to play. The president's role is the broadest role. Part of that role is he's the one who actually has to sell these policies to the American people, sell these policies to the Congress. And, you know, it may be irksome to pe other people in the process that we have these uh, that we have these challenges in a democracy, but the president has to take them into account. How long did it take Franklin Roosevelt to move the country? And it was obviously the Japanese at Pearl Harbor that made the difference, but to move the country to wartime footing when there was an isolationist mood afoot in the country. Um, you know, John F. Kennedy, um, this is a, a slightly different point, but we, we have civilian leadership for reason, um, you know, if you go back to the wartime councils that he had, uh, or the, the, the defense councils he had during the Cuban Missile Crisis, Curtis LeMay, who is the Air Force uh, commander, uh, wanted to bomb the hell out of Cuba. I think he may have said that he wanted to nuke Cuba. Kennedy resisted that. And there was great skepticism about the embargo and whether that would work. But it was his responsibility to exercise that judgment and weigh all these factors. So that's a slightly different point. My point is, my point is that the president has a broader responsibility than anyone in the government, and everyone in the government fights from their perspective as they should. His his job is to is to synthesize all of this and make what he thinks is the best decision for the country and the decision. And part of that is, you know, what the American people think and feel about these issues. So you mentioned the importance of civilian leadership, and at the same time you have civilians working in the White House uh, with the president, uh, and then they correspond and, and work with the Pentagon as well. Can you talk about your experience working with military officials, kind of what their strengths and weaknesses are, what separates them from civilian counterparts? Yes. It was interesting to me in reading Bob Gates's uh, memoir, or one of his memoirs, where he was talking about, you know, he, he worked in the White House at, at, on the NSC. He had a couple of stints, one under President Carter, one under President Bush. And he, he wrote about his frustration about, uh, you know, about the agencies. And he said, every once in a while, it'd be nice if they took into consideration what the president wanted to do. Um, that was his perspective <laughs> as a White House aide. As a defense secretary, you know, I think that he wanted a little less guidance sometimes, from, particularly from White House staff. And that is a tension that I think exists in every administration. My perception of the military was, as I said earlier, I had absolutely no doubt about their commitments, commitment to protect us, commitment to uh, our country. Uh, they were they're very bright, very able. They also were, I should say this, um, very, very adroit. Every bureaucracy in Washington 
and the Pentagon is a bureaucracy as well. You know that. You've worked there. Uh, every bureaucracy in Washington has some level of proficiency at spinning their story and trying to maneuver the president mm -hmm. to do what they want to do. No agency is better than that, uh, than the Pentagon. They, uh, and there are different ways. That sometimes it's selective leaks. Sometimes it's uh, sending someone up to the Hill to testify and getting friendly questions from friendly members of Congress who want to elicit a certain reply that they know will create pressures on the president. We saw this during the Afghanistan review. And, you know, how much of it was, I, I think if you listen to Secretary Gates, a lot of it was, you know, people within the bureaucracy not authorized from the top. But nonetheless, I mean, uh, General McChrystal wrote a, uh, uh, was asked to write a review and make recommendations. Uh, we read those recommendations in the Washington Post, I think, before the president saw them. Bob Woodward had the memo before the president. So, you know, they're very good at, at, at that. So I think they're proficient in their, they, they do a, a tremendous job. I was so impressed by the level of thought and, uh, and uh, competence, as well as the commitment to the country that I saw. And I was impressed as a, uh, you know, I should add the story, General Petraeus is coming today for any of you who are interested. When he, uh, in Bob Woodward's book, he referred to me as the ultimate spinmeister. <laughs> and I was, on, uh, I was on a Sunday show the week the book came out. Christiana Amanpour was the host. She read this quote to me. And I said, well, I've seen, I've seen General Petraeus on television, and I have to assume that he meant that admiringly as a compliment. And a few days later, um, I got a message from Petraeus via the NSC, and it just said, I think you handled that perfectly. So, uh, <laughs> but I mean, I think that, that uh, Petraeus is a good example. It's always been true. We saw General MacArthur, I mean, he lost his battle mm -hmm. uh, with President Truman, but it's always been true that there is a political nature to the, the military job. It's not just about defense and, and war, and, but also it, they, they are a they are a political organism as well. It might not be partisan, but they're a political player. Oh, I don't Anybody think else. it's partisan. Oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say mm -hmm. that at all. No, I think that they have, if they have a consensus view about what should be done, they're going to use every tool available to try and produce that outcome. So you've talked about this idea that during the Afghanistan strategy review, the president was a little bit jammed or boxed in by the leak of the McChrystal report recommending more troops. Um, we've talked to leaders who say that, that, I mean, and Secretary Gates wrote in his memoir also that that was absolutely not intentional, like not coordinated. Right. Um, you know, it accidentally so. looked that way. Yeah. No, I understand. No, no, no. I, 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 I it, it was, I mean, someone didn't leave them a crystal report on a bus and Bob Woodward <laughs> came along and found it. I mean, um, yeah. someone, it may not have been at that level, it may have been at a lower level, but someone leaked it. Admiral Mullen went to the Hill and testified, you know, about the McChrystal report in a way that definitely put a spin uh, on, on, on the ball. There were a series of things that happened. It wasn't just the leaking of the report. And I think they felt a sense of urgency. I understand they felt a sense of urgency. I think there was, President Obama held, I think, nine sessions on the mm -hmm. Afghanistan policy because he wanted to get it right and he wanted to explore all, all the avenues. You know, for military guys who are eager to go, um, I think the process was, in their view, uh, too, too uh, laborious. So I, I understand everything that was going on. And it's fine. I, I, I appreciate everybody. Everybody glosses their stories for their particular memoirs. Uh, I understand that I, I might be accused of that myself, but the reality was there were pressures being put on the president, and uh, you know I think that we worked through that. As China's role grows greater on the global stage, you want to stay up to date on the issues most pressing to China, both domestically 
and internationally. Check out the Just China podcast for in-depth analysis on recent headlines and investigative reports on Chinese matters that affect our globalized world. We are Just China. Find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening. Another point of civil military tension during that time frame, maybe even the culmination of it,、um, was in June of 2010, the firing of General McChrystal from his post as the commander of U.S. troops in Afghanistan, which people generally understand as the result of this Rolling Stone profile that came out that attributed some disrespectful comments about senior administration officials to him and his team. But from your standpoint, do you believe the president's decision to relieve General McChrystal was just about that article? Or was it more of like a broad reassertion of? I really think it was、opinion. about that article.、Uh, the article was not; it, it was a little less benign than you. I mean, you know, General McChrystal, and I had a chance to talk to him about it when he was here. General McChrystal and his staff were in Paris, and they made the mistake of allowing a reporter, now deceased, Michael Hastings, to encamp with them, and、uh, they blew off a lot of steam in their frustration. They were eager to go, and they wanted. This surge in Afghanistan, and they were angry that it hadn't happened, and frustrated. They were particularly angry at Vice President Biden, and he was a particular focus of their attack. But they were fundamentally disrespectful in their in their quotes. And the real question was, in terms of chain of command and military civilian relationships, could that go un? Responded to, and the president thought long and hard about it. I can tell you with absolute certainty, president was not eager for Stan McChrystal to go, not eager for him to go. And the day that he came in and、uh, was relieved of his command, president called us together in the Oval Office,、uh, his staff, and said, "I do not want anyone here." To suggest to anyone, on the record or off the record, that this is a good day. This is not a good day. A good man just left here, quite possibly his career over,、uh, and、uh, and that is not a good day. And and let me just add,、um, one of his big concerns was, given the frayed relationships with President Karzai, and the place at which we were in the war, that how are we going to、um, You know how how would a new、uh, a new leader commander there re- relate to the situation? And ultimately, the solution was to ask General Petraeus, who had a relationship with Karzai, who understood the whole situation and had broad respect, to ask him to come and take over in Afghanistan. And that is what、uh, that is what ultimately happened. So when we spoke to General McChrystal, he said. The initial reason for inviting the Rolling Stone reporter to join his team was he felt there wasn't、uh, enough being done to drive up public support for the war. There wasn't enough being done to sell the war to the American people. Do you feel there was enough being done? Do you feel like your team was doing enough messaging about the war? Well, it's kind of ironic because the accusation I hear sometimes is that we were too political and concerned about public opinion,、mm-hmm. and. So for General McChrystal to say, "Gee, they weren't political enough and working hard enough on public opinion," I find I find hard to process.、Mm-hmm. And if, in fact, his goal was to sell the war, and look, I have really high regard for Stan McChrystal. I mean, he is an extraordinary guy. And、um, again, my my absolute conviction is that he wanted. To do the best job he possibly could to、uh, stabilize Afghanistan, to give them a chance for civil society, and、uh, all the things that we wanted.、Uh, but if his goal was to sell the war, that was an awfully clumsy way to do it. And it may speak to the fact that you should leave politics and public relations to the politics and public relations people, because that would be a textbook example of bad strategy right、mm-hmm. there. I think that what a lot of critics and maybe what General McChrystal was getting at,、um, they kind of believe that you helped lead one of the most effective messaging and communications teams in political history, and you had, you know, the bully pulpit of one of the greatest orators ever to be the president, right?、Um, do you think that 
you would have done anything more or differently after they had decided on the Afghanistan strategy to communicate those wars? Well, you know, the first thing the president did was, first of all, let me say, I appreciate the compliment about, uh, you know, but it, it was easier to sell the country on Barack Obama than it was to sell them on wars that had been going on for years and for which there was no end in sight. Um, you know, so uh, that is a different, that is a different and more challenging assignment. The first thing that the president did when he decided to uh, to 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 send thirty thousand more troops to Afghanistan uh, was uh, to go to uh, West Point and make a speech about it. So, and he made a very eloquent case for why he was doing what he was uh, what he was doing. Um, so, you know, but you can't go out and sell a policy before you have a policy. Mm-hmm. And that was our challenge. So maybe there is a little bit of misunderstanding between the Pentagon and the White House. Maybe, but look, again, they, they have a job and they have a perspective and they're focused on their job and perspective. At the same time that all of this was going on, we also had to sell the country on a recovery plan for the economy. We were involved in health care. There, there, there is a kind of limit to presidential communications and how many things you can communicate at what time and, and so on. So he was dealing with a whole portfolio of difficult issues that he needed to communicate, not just the one that they were singularly focused on, mm-hmm. as critical as it was. And I, you know, look, there's nothing more serious than war and the commitment of young people uh, to it, but um, but so you know, I I just my, my answer is they were they were thinking about this from their perspective, and as they should have been, the president was thinking about it from a broader perspective as he should have been. So, shifting gears a little bit um, and talking just more broadly about your role as a political advisor. So in 2017, after the National Security Council was reorganized under the Trump administration. Steve Bannon, a political advisor, was placed on that council. Um, in some ways, people might liken him to a similar position as you. Uh, how do you feel that your participation oh, in NSA... Only in our sartorial splendor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how do you feel that your participation in those National Security Council meetings was used as a precedent or justification for placing Bannon... Well, I would challenge, challenge the premise of your question because participation suggests... Uh, that I, that I was engaged in the conversation. Mm-hmm. My role was simply to be an observer, and that was clear, made clear to everyone from the beginning. I was not a member of the National Security Council. I would not have uh, accepted <laughs> such an appointment because I wasn't qualified to be that. I was there uh, because I wanted to hear the conversation and make sure that when it came time to communicate the president's decisions, that I was fully informed about them. And uh, so I, I think that was a, an, an, the analogy failed. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, Steve Bannon was, was, was not a member of the National Security Council. I think he's over in Europe trying to get on security councils over there now. <laughs> um, so going back to that point, though, even when we accept that you didn't have direct input or participation in the National Security Council deliberations, but part of it also as an optics issue as Secretary Gates wrote about in his book, he said, I felt this major national security debate had been driven more by the White House staff and by domestic politics than any other in my entire experience. Uh, He mentions you. He says, I thought Obama did the right things on national security, but everything came across as politically calculated. Is there anything you would have done differently with regard to the optics or whatever gave him and the military leadership that impression? I, I, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm going to keep repeating myself. I understand the perspective that he had. Let, let me just say one thing. I said earlier that... And this is Secretary Gates who worked for 40 years under many different presidential administrations. No, I understand. So I, I, look, as I said, I just sat with him. I have enormous respect for him. That doesn't mean he's immune to the same kind of parochiality that uh, anybody else in government is subject to. You know, I don't... Uh, one of our concerns, honestly and they were borne out in this process, was that there, there, that there, were, there would be selective leaks out of these, this process 
and that we would not be in a position as people who were out there talking uh, to understand the full context of these conversations. And, uh, you know, um, maybe the it's, it's possible that, that the, the folks from the defense side uh, felt more comfortable if there weren't people there who were fully privy to the, to the conversations. Um, all I can say is when it came to the decision-making process, um, I did not know uh, I mean, I know in, in his book, Bob Gates wrote that Jim Jones told him that I was telling people the president would never accept the military's uh, recommendations. That is just completely false because I didn't know until the very last what the president's decision would be. And I was not uh, part of the decision-making process uh, in these wars. So if Secretary Gates had that impression, I'm, I, I'm sorry that he did, but um, as I told him when I saw him, um, that was not the case. So you're saying there is an appropriate role for political advisors at the end of that process, but not not during it, not as- Well, you can't have it both ways and say, right. gee, they have to do a better job of selling the war, yeah. and then say to the guys whose job it is to do that, but don't you be involved in the process. I mean, it's one or the other. Mm -hmm. right. You know, you gotta ride, you gotta get on your horse and ride it there. So sitting in the Situation Room, you're taking in this information, but not helping out with the military decision-making. Mm -hmm. um, you came in with no military background. How did you close that expertise gap on national security? You know, that is a great, first of all, I wouldn't call myself an expert on national security, just to be clear. But, you know, one of the challenges for anybody in the White House, including the president, is that every single day you're confronted. I didn't know anything about deep sea oil leaks, and now I know more about them than I ever thought I would. Um, I didn't know anything about pirates, you know, uh, until we faced that situation mm -hmm. in uh, Somalia. Every single, I mean, one of the great and stimulating things about working in the White House is that every single day you're confronting things that you don't, that you didn't have a, necessarily have a background in before. You have to be a generalist uh, to work in the kind of job I work. But the great thing about working in the White House is that you also have access to the foremost experts in the world on every single subject. And if you're smart about how you go about your work, you approach every topic with humility and take advantage of all of the resources that are available to get yourself up to speed. What would you say was the best thing about working as a political advisor? Um, the God's honest truth is I did 150 campaigns and I left after the last Obama campaign because that experience from the time I started working with Senator Obama uh, as a, um, as a, when he was a state senator here running for the Senate through the, through the 2012 campaign. Um, it was politics as I thought politics should be. It was mm -hmm. idealistic. It was driven by what is possible and a conviction that change, um, that through our process of democracy, you can actually change the course of history, change public policy for the better, help people and communities, um, and um, that, and so my ride with him uh, and the reaffirmation of idealism was very, very important to me. The second one, and I say this not to be patronizing, but every single day during my uh, during those years and in other campaigns, I got to work with young people, and um, I saw uh, really bright, well motivated people who were skeptical but not cynical and who understood their role in a democracy and were willing to take action. I was really inspired by that. It's one of the reasons why I started the Institute of Politics. I knew I was done with campaigns. I wasn't done with young people. And I go home optimistic every day because of that exposure. So uh, I guess at the end of the day, that may be the best part of it. Well, David Axrod, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your experience and insights. Thank you for having me, and thank you guys for what you're doing. Thank you. Uh, we have some time for some audience questions, uh, about 20 or so minutes. So if anyone has any questions they'd like to ask, that would be a great time. I've talked them into submission. Yeah. Well, while we're getting ready for that, one more thing on um, one other military issue that played out during this time period was the don't ask, don't tell. Yes. Um, Talk to us about why that was an important issue for President Obama. 
Well, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a solid ironclad commitment. He mm -hmm. felt strongly that people should, who wanted to serve our country, should not, um, should not be uh, excluded on that basis, and and it was one of the early meetings we had, uh, that where you know another meeting in which I was a, an observer, but yeah. Secretary Gates came over with Admiral Mullen, General Cartwright, and uh, the president said. I, I didn't invite you here to ask you whether we should end this policy. Uh, I invited you to say we are going to end it, but I want to do it in the most uh, responsible way. And uh, there was a very frank discussion. There were concerns on the part of uh, Secretary Gates, of Admiral Mullen, about upheaval in the force at a time when we had two wars going, and the president was very sensitive to that. I, there was agreement that this should be done not by the act of the executive, but by Congress. It was in, instituted by Congress. And, you know, there was a, it was a two-year effort yeah. and done very, I think, responsibly. One of the things that happened was, you know, we, we did research uh, among, the, uh, among the force, among active military. And what, was what, what we found was that the generals and admirals were a lot more concerned about this than the the service people, file. yeah, yeah, rank and file were, and this just reflected the debate in our own society. I mean, you know, young people were far more, far less worried or concerned, and I think that gave uh, some assurance to the leadership in the Pentagon that this is something that could happen. And then, you know, I, we, you and I have talked about one of the most moving days I had when I was uh, when I was working for the president was the day that he signed the bill repealing "Don't Ask, Don't Tell." Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it was at the auditorium at the Commerce Department. And uh, Admiral Mullen, who started off, I think, wary of the change, ended up being an extraordinary uh, spokesperson for it and testified before Congress and said, I can't, I can't uh, ask people who, we, who swear an oath uh, to, to live a lie. And uh, he, he gave very moving testimony. And when he walked into that room, and the, there were, the, the gay community was well represented in that room along with others, when he walked into that auditorium, there was this uh, massive ovation. And uh, it was, that was moving to me to see that, to, 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 to be there for that moment. So that was a, that was a big deal. And you know we, we see echoes of this debate today about transgender, service members but um you know I, I i'm just happy that people are stepping up and want to serve why do you think admiral mullen's testimony was so uh, effective and why he was perceived so well because i think admiral mullen was i think that those who had a concern about about whether this would be a disruptive were reassured by his testimony but he put it on a fundamental level of values mm -hmm. Uh, and the the desire to make sure that we weren't in fact encouraging members of the military to lie in order to serve that that was there was something fundamentally wrong about to lie about who they were and I think that he was so Im, 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 impassioned about that point that it it was I think a watershed event in the debate. We'll take a question. Uh, hi, my name is Ari. I'm a master's student in international relations here. Um, I'm curious about the national security transition. Presidents often campaign one way, but then are constrained in office. President Bush said no more nation building, took us into Iraq. President Obama was an anti-war candidate, but kept a lot of the global war on terror architecture, whether it's drone strikes or rendition. And I guess I'm curious about what changed. Was it access to new information, or was it just constraint by Congress? Or well, what, let, what let me just challenge uh, you a, a little bit on this because. If you go back and look at the campaign, President Obama was deeply uh, critical of the decision to go into Iraq, but recognized that we needed to, uh, that we were there and needed to get out in an orderly fashion. President Bush had signed a, a status of forces agreement with the Iraqis, and President Obama implemented it. And he had campaigned on a timetable to remove the troops. That timetable shifted a bit uh, on the recommendation of Secretary Gates. But not not all that much, and as for as far as that Afghanistan goes, 
he was very, very clear as a candidate that he thought that we were going to have to send more troops to Afghanistan and that, in fact, terrorism was real. And that was something we saw very chillingly on a daily basis when we got there. In fact, the night before the inauguration, the day before the inauguration, I got a call from Rahm Emanuel, the incoming chief of staff, and he said, uh, call me from a hard line. And he said, uh, we, we have uh, been with Chertoff and the Homeland Security people all day uh, because there is a real concern about an active threat on the inauguration. Uh, there were four guys who had slipped in the country from Canada that they were looking for, and they were feared that they were headed for the inauguration. And he said, you've got to write a, uh, a letter. Uh, uh, you've got to write, I'm sorry, remarks for the president briefly that uh, instructing the crowd to disperse in an orderly way, telling them, you know, where, where to look for guidance from uh, people who would shepherd them out and so on. And I met the president-elect in the speaker's office and handed him uh, this letter that he put in his pocket. And had there been an attack, the Secret Service would have tapped him on the shoulder. He would have given that speech. So we were, uh, we were aware during the campaign and on the eve of the, of the administration just how serious the threats were and that we had to deal with them uh, seriously. Uh, so there was no change in, in, in policy or thinking relative to that. He did try and close down Guantanamo, was thwarted by Congress. He did ban enhanced uh, interrogation techniques. A lot of the commitments that people associate with him from the campaign on that side of the equation also also were carried out. Hi, my name is Jason. I'm a joint degree MBA MPP student here. Uh, and so I just wanted to ask, one of the biggest uh, areas of liberal criticism of President Obama was his increased use of drone strikes. Yes, uh, this was mentioned. Yeah. yeah, and so I just wanted to ask, you know, you're talking about pol political considerations and military decisions. I was just curious if you think part of the reasoning driving that increased use of drone strikes was because of the fear of you know, political backlash if an American soldier was killed in action. And so then therefore he decided to use something a little bit safer in that regard by relying more on drone strikes. Even well, there's no question that the pre protection, preservation of uh, American troops was a, a factor in the president's thinking on these issues. There also, you know, there there were places where where there were terrorists operating that were hard to reach and you could send planes in and bomb them, but the but the uh, possibility of you know ancillary civilian casualties were greater uh, in that regard. So that was another consideration. So um, there were there were an array of considerations, but certainly protecting and preserving uh, our troops was one of them. I mean, I choose not to put it in a political context, and I never heard the discussion in that way. One more question? Yeah, we can do that. Do it. Uh, my name is Coco Yim. I'm a second year in Harris right now uh, doing master's in public policy. My question is, what are some of the things that you, you think the current administration is doing well in terms of, of uh, improving civ uh, civil-military relationships? And if you don't think they're do doing a good job, then what would you change? And like, how, what is your strategy of improving it? Thank you. Well, I don't think they're doing a very good job of it because I don't, you know, I think, a, a t and look, I'm not universally critical of President Trump. I, I actually think he, like every other president before him, uh, has pressured our NATO allies to do more in terms of the cost of their own defense. And he's had some success with that, and I give him credit for that. But the tip off, I mean, we, we heard some things in the campaign that betrayed attitudes that I think have infiltrated uh, his administration, you know, as president. You know, one was when he said what he said about Senator McCain, that he didn't, you know, that he, he didn't think of him as a hero. He liked people who weren't captured. That isn't, th those aren't things that you want to hear from a, uh, from a commander in chief. And he referred to how he, my generals, and, and that was struck an awkward note. I think that, you know, if, 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 if there was a sense on the part of the Pentagon that President Obama was too deliberate, I, I think there must be a sense in the Pentagon of having to react to tweets 
learning that you're sent, you're you're going to be asked to send troops to the border, or that we're going to withdraw troops from Syria, or any number of other things, makes it very makes it for a very very difficult relationship. And I, I don't think this president is very good at taking uh, advice. I think one of the reasons why General Mattis left the Pentagon was because of that, and that's worrisome to me in this television show that I do with with uh, Secretary Gates, which will be on this weekend, he said his big concern was that presidents need people around them who are going to tell them what they need to know and just not what they and not just what they want to hear. I don't know that that is the case. He he said he thought there were still people there doing that, but we've seen a lot of people leave, gen, uh, you know, including the generals, you know, General Kelly, General McMaster, General Mattis, and I suspect part of it is that he wasn't good at hearing and taking advice and, and a little too um, loose at uh, announcing policy decisions without conferring with the people who are going to have to implement them. So I have great concerns about this, and I don't know if he has the capacity to correct it, but this and this may be why you know we still have an acting Secretary of Defense. I don't know. He may have trouble recruiting people for some of these positions, but we'll see. As an American, I hope that this improves. I think it's important for this country. It's important for the world. But people are who they are, so we'll see. On that happy note, we'll uh, wrap up. <laughs> um, David, thank you so much. Thank for you for having me. Yeah, really, really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for joining us today on Thank You for Your Service. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at TYFYS underscore podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you'll get our next episode as soon as it's released. Thank You For Your Service is produced by Haz Yano, Ashwarya Kumar, and Mary Martha McClay. Special thanks to Admiral Mike Mullen, Captain Mike Robinson, Samantha Neal, and the Institute of Politics. This podcast is a production of the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast and is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of Defense or any other military entity. I'm Thomas Krasnation. And I'm Nick Pareso. See you next time. Chicago, the windy city, the city of broad shoulders, the second city is complicated. Known for its legacies of segregation and political corruption, Chicago has a lot to grapple with. On Chicagoland, we bring you conversations with activists, journalists, politicians, and others who are working to address these issues. You can find Chicagoland wherever you listen to podcasts. From University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts, this is Chicagoland.